Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be a sports columnist in New York? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 89 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 24 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Thursday nights on iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Marshawn Lynch is one of the more interesting players in the National Football League, to say the least. The first to bring back the phrase Marshawn being Marshawn since Manny was being Manny. While the media doesn't particularly love beast mode, his teammates surely do, and there's never a doubt that he'll always have their back. That is, unless family is involved. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Marshawn Lynch is one of the most captivating players in the National Football League both for his play on the field and his actions off of it. His career has afforded us some of the most impressive running plays you'll ever see in the sport. A controversial call in the Super Bowl that left him without the ball, and several times where Marshawn has afforded us the opportunity to peel back the curtain of his life as a wordsmith. I'm just about that action, boss. All right, how about the effort of the offensive line to keep pushing against the defensive attack so aggressively? Yeah. Anything else other than yeah today? Yeah. Hold on one second. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe. I don't know. How you feeling? Yeah. 
Still having fun, Marshawn? Yeah. What was your song of the day? No Juice. Thanks for asking. What's that? I said thanks for asking. Appreciate it. Thanks for asking. I appreciate you asking about my stomach. Thank you. Y'all want to try again, huh? So y'all going to try again? That's what we're going to do. We're going to try one more time. I'm thankful. Talk about your performance in the second half of the big run. I'm thankful. What was the song of the day on the way to the game, Marshawn? I'm thankful. Hey, I'm just here so I don't get fined. So y'all can sit here and ask me all the questions y'all want to. I'm going to answer with the same answer. So y'all can shoot if y'all please. I'm here so I won't get fined. I'm here so I won't get fined. I'm here so I won't get fined. You sexy too. I'm just here so I won't get fined. Hey, I'm here so I won't get fined. Hey, I'm here so I won't get fined. Hey, you better make more with your time. You only got three more minutes. I'm just here so I won't get fined. Hey, I'm just here so I won't get fined. So you won't get fined? Just here so I won't get fined. Man, I talk to you later, my brother. You still here because what? So I won't get fined. Marshawn, are you concerned about getting fined for your hat? You know why I'm here. Why do you have to be a jerk to all of us? Marshawn, how are you, how are you, how are you feeling today? You know why I'm here. <laughs> you know why I'm here. You're here just so you won't get fined? You know why I'm here. You know why I'm here. I don't know. Can you help me out? Marshawn, isn't this whole act just a way for you to get more attention for yourself? It's ultimately a selfish move when there's so much other things that go into winning for the Seahawks, despite, and, and, you know, besides you. You know why I'm here. I mean, I know I'm going to get got. But I'm going to get mine more than I get got, though. But while Marshawn was able to have a resurgence with his career after leaving Buffalo for Seattle, a second resurgence has yet to come after unretiring to join his hometown Oakland Raiders. While the fear of the old beast mode is still there, the numbers unfortunately are not, and weren't there this past Sunday as the Oakland Raiders looked to save their season against the Kansas City Chiefs. In the second quarter, Marshawn had just nine yards on two carries and would soon create a highlight almost as popular as one of his potential beast mode runs. With just over six minutes left in the second quarter, Raiders quarterback Derek Carr and some Oakland and Kansas City players ended up in a scrum after Carr was wrapped up on a play, which prompted some pushing and shoving. And also prompted Marshawn Lynch, who wasn't in the game, to race in from the sideline to break things up. It would end up becoming Marshawn's longest run of the game. He was soon ejected in the fray for bumping the chest of an official and grabbing his jersey, before appearing to stick up for a Chiefs player, not his own quarterback. That player... Cornerback Marcus Peters happens to be Marshawn Lynch's longtime family friend and also grew up in Oakland. Both would even end up taking the train back home after the game, a game in which Marshawn Lynch didn't miss much of since he was spotted in the stands after his ejection instead of leaving the stadium. 
because of the official shove, Lynch was suspended for one game, a decision that was upheld after an appeal in which Marshawn argued on a conference call that nine other players had contacted officials without being suspended. Also on the conference call to now stand up for Marshawn Lynch, Marcus Peters. Unfortunately, Marshawn won't be able to play against his former team when the Raiders travel to Buffalo this Sunday to play the Bills. The question is, will Marshawn Lynch make the trip? Hey, I'm just here so I won't get fined. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. When we come back, we'll talk to a longtime sports columnist about his career writing in New York. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know... Who will win the World Series and why? Now to this week's guest in Wallace Matthews, a longtime sports columnist for the New York Post, ESPN, New York Sports Day, the Washington Post, the New York Times, just to name a few. Wally has been writing since the early 80s, covering boxing, then baseball, and everything seemingly in between, so it's safe to say we had more than enough to talk about. We chatted about how he tried to become a professional boxer and how that helped him cover the sport, finding a voice as a sports columnist in New York and dealing with some of the criticisms from that, some tales from covering the New York Yankees and a few of his favorite things, as well as what's changed the most in the industry since he started writing in it and what he possibly could do in the future. You can follow Wally on Twitter. He's at Oyster Bay Bomber, common spelling for all three words. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Wallace Matthews. He's a longtime writer and columnist for boxing and baseball and just about everything in between. Wally, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm good, John. How are you today? I'm doing great, though I wish I was reading your writings about the New York Yankees playing in the World Series this week <laughs> and the next, though I'm sure a small part of you might be happy to have avoided 100-degree temperatures and L.A. traffic <laughs> I, I never Tuesday. mind warm weather, but I, honestly, you know, I think the Yankees had a really good season. They came within, within a, you know, a win of the World Series. I've been to five, no, I should say five, I've been to seven World Series with the Yankees. Uh, I can wait for the next one. Are you jealous the game only lasted about two and a half hours, though? That's really the big thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm more shocked than jealous, but I think, if anything, it, it just shows you what I've always thought, is that you know the best thing for pace of game is no hitting. I think people probably spent more time heading home in the L.A. traffic than they did at the actual game. Oh, so without a doubt. What an amazing thing But that's to why see. they leave early. So, that you know, if you couldn't even leave early last night because the game ended early. Right. 
Before talking a little bit more about the World Series, I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit to get started talking about your writing career as a whole. And while some in sports media knew that they wanted that path at a young age, yours was a little different in that before eventually covering boxing, you first pursued becoming a professional boxer. So (laughs) if you had to write an epitaph of sorts for your boxing career, what would it be? (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't have been a contender. How's that? I think that's already been taken, though. A little switch to that is, <laughs> I'm telling you, is what I makes journalism fun. Um, listen, it, you know, I did a lot of uh, different things when I was a kid. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I basically fell into this because I found it easy, honestly. And I still find it easier than other things that I could do. I mean, it's not always easy, especially when you're sitting in a, in a ballpark in the bottom of the ninth inning and it's a one-run game. And the closer's got two men on base and you don't know who's going to win and you need to be done with your story as soon as the last out is made. You start to question your sanity on what you did with your life. But <laughs> otherwise, I mean, you know, I, I enjoy what I do. I, and, you know, I, it's something I kind of fell into and uh, it's not anything that I'm looking to, to walk away from any day soon. I can rattle these off, but it might be easier for you to as well. Can you give a Cliff Notes version of how you first got into covering sports in 1983 and yeah, some of the different yeah. spots along was, the way? Um, sure. I, w- I was uh, going to um, college here on Long Island, CW Post, and uh, they offered an internship. I was doing some writing there. I was, I was a communication slash broadcast major. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but they were offering an internship at Newsday, which is the big paper here on Long Island, which at the time had a huge circulation. I, I think it's about half of that now, but you know, that's happened throughout the industry. And, uh, I, um, I actually entered, uh, the, um, I, I, I put in a, an application for this internship and I actually put down that I wanted to work in news because I wanted to work in politics or news. I, I really didn't want to work in sports. I wasn't that interested in it. And, uh, about a month later, I, uh, found out that I did not get the internship and I thought, okay, well, that's that. And uh, about a week or so after that, I got a call from someone in the sports department who said, would you like to come in and work as a part-timer for us? And, you know, answer the phones, we liked your, your application. And, uh, you know, they said, unfortunately, you know, you finished, they told me I finished second. Okay. So like an idiot, I said, who actually did you choose? And they said, oh, some guy named Tom Verducci. So I was like, hmm. I, I probably never hear that name again. And I, <laughs> I think we all know who he is. <laughs> He's now. done. So, okay. Uh, yeah. There was no real shame in losing to that guy. Um, so I took the job and uh, I found that I liked it. I found that it was kind of a pressure cooker. I mean, we would work on on a Saturday, not only on Long Island, but all over the country. There's a million high school football games and we would just, you know, we would have a blitz of information coming in on, uh, you know, every high school on Long Island. And I would have to take that and write it up and, uh, you know, get it into the paper. And I found that I kind of liked the rush of working quickly, you know, working on deadline. And I found that I was a little bit more interested in sports than I thought I was. So from there, I decided to try to work my way in. And I did it, as you pointed out, I had done some boxing before. So my way in was my expertise in boxing. So I started to pitch them that, you know, I could do some boxing for you guys if you need it. And, you know, little by little, they worked me into the rotation. And um, about two years after I got the part-time job, they hired me as a full-time boxing writer. And that would have been 1985. And then you move on to several different outlets in New yes, York I, and around New York. ESPN. Yeah, I went to the New York Post. They hired me as their lead columnist in 1994. Uh, before that, I had done some TV work for NBC on the Olympics. Um, 
I did some TV work for ESPN on boxing commentary. Um, the Post offered me the job of their, their lead columnist. I took it. I stayed with them until 2002. Then I went off to host. I decided to take a shot at hosting a drive time radio show. Um, went up against two guys named Mike and the Mad Dog, who I didn't think were going to really last too long. Unfortunately, they're, you know, one of them is still there. In fact, they're both still there in, in different places. And I'm gone. But it was a good three-year run I had there. Uh, after that, I went back to Newsday for five years as their lead columnist again. And then in 2010, I got offered the job by ESPN to become their Yankee beat writer, something which I had never done before. You know, I'd never covered a baseball team on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, you know, I really didn't think that I was qualified to do it. But after a while, I found out, hey, you know, this is pretty, this is fun, man. I can really sink my teeth into this. So I did that for seven years. And now I'm working as a freelancer, mostly for the New York Times, but also a couple of other publications, still doing Yankees, still doing uh, baseball and doing uh, as much boxing as I, as I can get. When it comes to your boxing writing, what's unique to that in general, the sport itself and the way the sport is covered have obviously evolved over the years. But when you first started covering it, many newspapers often would put their best writers on that beat. And it's a far more intricate sport than two guys just hitting each other, like some people might think. How much did being a former boxer help you in covering that sport and what makes it so unique to cover in general? Well, first of all, I, think, I thought it helped me tremendously. I, I don't believe in, you know, athletes often say, well, you know, you never played the game, so you can't really understand it. I don't think that's true, but I think it's truer in boxing because boxing is not like other sports. I mean, you know, the, the boxer in the course of his daily, you know, <laughs> course of his work goes through intense emotions that, you know, baseball players, football players, basketball players don't. I mean, you don't go through the kind of fear and despair and pain and desperation that a boxer will go through even when he's winning a fight. You know, it's just such a, a much more intense experience being, you know, in, enclosed in a 20-foot square with another guy who wants to kill you. I'm sorry. It's not the same as standing in against Clayton Kershaw or having to take a free throw, you know, in, in the last seconds of a game or even, you know, playing in an NFL game. It's completely different. You're in there all by yourself with no, you know, no teammates. You can't tap out like you can in MMA. You can't call a timeout. Uh, you know, you can't call for your mommy. You basically, it's just you and another guy who has the same intention that you do, which is to kill the other guy. So, I mean, that's about the most intense experience I think you can get in sports. So, yes, having done that, I think it helped me because I was able to understand what the boxers were going through. You know, I mean, I could, I could feel it. I had felt every one of those things. And, you know, honestly, I've never stood in against Clayton Kershaw or Dallas Keuchel. So, you know, even though I've played baseball at a pretty high level, you know, in high school, and I could still go to a batting cage and hit, you know, a fastball. I don't know what it's like to stand in there against a guy who can throw a slider and a change up and, you know, break my knees with, with a curveball. So I can't really, you know, I can't really relate to that the way I could in boxing. And, uh, you know, I think as to the uniqueness of the sport, I just told you what it is. I mean, it's, you know, everything else is a game. This is actually literally life and death. Did any aspect from boxing, though, carry over to you covering other sports? You've pretty much written about almost everything. Chess championships, covering the Olympics, whatever sport there is to write about, you've yeah. probably done it at some point. And regarding baseball... 
you've been with boxers after losses probably when they're emotionally drained at different points throughout different careers. And I've been, John, I've been I've been in hospitals with families who are who are, you know, con, you know, basically conducting a death vigil over a loved one. So, I mean, there's nothing that compares to it. You know, that's why a lot of times I can't really take quite seriously, you know, the, the quote unquote grief after, you know, a loss in a baseball game or a football game or basketball. It's not the same. I've actually sat with families where, you know, the boxer has just undergone brain surgery and the, and the doctors come out and said, hey, you know, we don't know what's going to happen here. So there's no, you can't even compare the two. Writing as a columnist is a much different world than writing as a reporter because you're taking a stance, you're putting yourself out there. And in your case, Wally, you were doing so for much of the time in New York, where readers, of course, as you know, will let you hear about a disagreement they might have with you, especially now with social media and the internet. Yeah, well, that's changed. It now it doesn't matter where you write anymore. Readers let you know. Right. How long did it take you to find your voice as a writer or, or even the confidence it takes to write in that way? Uh, that's a very good question. It, it took a while. It took a while because uh, I think like a lot of young writers, I started out... Um, I won't say imitating, but trying to emulate people whose style I admired, you know, and I think that in the beginning, I think I was trying to be a little bit too much of Jimmy Breslin, you know, and, and not enough of myself. And, uh, and you're right. It comes with confidence. It's after a while when you realize that, Hey, you know what? My own people actually agree or, or, or see validity in my thoughts, you know, so I don't have to write it the way this guy would write it or the way that guy would write it. I can write it the way I write it. And now, you know, I've taught, journalism at a couple of colleges and uh i have children who i've you know mentored through their writing skills and i always tell them the same thing write it as if you're telling me the story you know if you wanted to tell me a story and you want to keep my interest write it that way don't write it the way shakespeare would write it or edgar Allan poe or hemingway write it the way you would sit down and say hey dad this is what happened today and then i'm going to listen you know you're going to grab me by the lapels and i'm going to listen and it took me a while to understand that that was the way i had to write but once i did you know, there's no turning back. That's the way I write now. Do you have a story of a player or a coach or someone involved with the topic of your writing where someone might have called you out for something you said? <laughs> it happens from time to time. I, I wouldn't give you any any personal things because I don't I don't believe in, in speaking negatively about guys that I cover. You know, if, obviously, if you deserve to be criticized for performance or, you know, some kind of behavior, I'll, I'll be more than happy to write that. But uh you know, things that happen behind the scenes, I think, should stay there. But, yeah, I mean, I've had guys in different ways say that they didn't like something I wrote. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'm always open to that. Always. I mean, I can tell you a story. This is not probably not going to be as spectacular as you want. But a couple of years ago, you know, every year the Yankees have a, a fifth starter competition. You know, just like the annual thing. A couple of years ago, they had three or four guys in it. And it was uh, David Phelps and Adam Warren and a couple of other guys. And, uh the way I wrote the story made it seem as if David Phelps was going to win the job and that Adam Warren wasn't even being considered. Well, David Phelps came up to me in the clubhouse the next day and said, hey, man, you know, Adam Warren's one of my best friends. And it makes it you, you quoted me and it almost made it look like I was dismissing Adam. So I said, geez, you know, I didn't mean to do that. And I apologize. And I went over to Adam and I said, look, I apologize if, uh, you know, this offended you in any way you know you felt like you're being dismissed and he said i don't even know what you're talking about i don't know what you wrote but i mean like to me that's the way to handle it he came over you know in a civil manner and said you know look i think you know you 
you did something wrong here. And I said, fine. And, you know, we went back in and we corrected it. And that was the end of it. I mean, I've had other guys who have threatened me. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to give you any names, but uh, I've always been able to talk my way out of things. We've never, uh, you know, had a, a problem where anything got physical. And I've never had anybody ever dispute the accuracy of what I've written. I have had people take issue with the tone. But, you know, that's, you know, that's a matter of personal taste and you really can't tell me how to write something. But I've never had a guy say to me, hey, this is factually wrong and you have to change this. Right. That's it's almost part of the job when it comes to being a columnist, where you sometimes have to be a little harsher with the tone of something just to get your yeah. point across. But I will tell you this, as I've gotten older and hopefully more mature, I, I think my tone has become a little bit more diplomatic. I think in the beginning I was uh, and don't forget, I have worked in some places where it was expected for you to be basically a hatchet man, you know, for no, it's not a secret, but the New York post wants you to write differently than the New York times does. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that you have to tailor yourself to the outlet that you're writing for. And, um, the other thing is there, you know, you write different sports differently boxing. You can write a little bit harsher than you can write baseball just because the boxers are pretty self-critical and, uh, believe it or not, uh, probably more tolerant of the media than any other athletes I've ever covered. Uh, baseball players, a little bit more coddled, a little bit more used to uh, being uh, idolized than criticized. So you have to kind of watch the way you ask them. You have to be careful in the way you ask a question. You have to be careful in the way you write things. And I think it comes with experience. And I think as you grow up, you realize, hey, these are the things that work and these are the things that don't work. It's also interesting to see the evolution of where we are now in a hot take culture of sorts where some writers are just going for clicks and not necessarily the accuracy that you've talked about. And it probably would have been easier for you maybe toward the last couple of years to go that route. If somebody offered enough money for it, it would be hard to turn well, down, but it's a different a, type nobody's of offered writing. enough money for it. And B, you know what? I, I have faith in the public. I really, I, I know a lot of times, you know, that's going to come back to bite me because the public will, will disappoint you very often. But I think people see through that after a while. I really do. I think they see when guys are just trying to say something for effect and when they have something behind it to to um, to support it, you know, and I, and I do think that after a while, when you lose credibility and here's the thing, look, I, I'm, there are some guys, you know, I, I know that you watch some shows where some guys have zero credibility, but they are quite compelling in terms of how they present their ideas. And I think people people will watch that as a spectacle without taking the people seriously. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I, that's what I expect from him, but I got to hear what he's going to say tomorrow, even though it's going to be insane. Right. I don't want to be that guy. I never wanted to be the guy that people were saying, oh, this guy's crazy, but let me hear what he says. You know, I want them, I want to be the guy that people say, this is a guy who's going to tell me why with the right reasoning behind it. You know, he's going to tell me something that I can trust. I don't want to be the guy who's, who's a freak show, you know, the, the star of a freak show. And I think those are the people, unfortunately, that make the big bucks and get all the attention in this business these days. But, you know, it's a decision we all have to make, and I don't want to be that guy. There's obviously highs and lows when it comes to sports media and a career in general, and you've done a ton of things as far as where you've worked, what you've covered. Has there been a low point throughout all this, whether that might have been earlier in your career or maybe more <laughs> recently? Just, you're going to laugh at this, but, yeah, low point is whenever you look at your paycheck. It's not a very high-paying profession. Uh, yeah, I guess when I, when I left the post in 2002, you know, I wasn't real thrilled with the way that went down. Um, 
you know, and uh, also I, I had high hopes for the radio show. I thought that, uh, you know, I still believe that had we been given more of a chance in three years, you know, it may seem like a pretty long you know, time to go, but it's um, it just really building up an audience at that point. And I felt like we were pretty we were on the cusp of, uh, of breaking through when they decided to pull the plug on us. And, uh, you know, they were political reasons at ESPN for that, as well as, uh, you know, uh, ratings reasons. So, yeah, I wasn't too thrilled with that. But otherwise, I mean, believe me, I've never been happier than I was this year covering the Yankees for the Times. Great place to work. We've mentioned a little bit how writing has changed, how social media has changed we connected through Twitter and social media, and I, I know you do connect with people that read your things and people that have something to say about what you write, of course, as well. How have you been able to evolve through all this and get to where you are today and, and not fall behind with all these different advances that have come to sports media? Well, I think it's, uh, it's you have no choice. You either evolve or you die. I mean, that's, you know, that's the rule of nature throughout, you know, the history of the world. Evolve or die, you know, and, uh, when I first started using Twitter, I guess in 2007 or so, I didn't quite understand what, what the real purpose of it was. I think I now have a better understanding of it. I think it's a great way to get your information out there, to get uh, people to read your stuff and not just be limited to, you know, those, you know, who live in your circulation area or, you know, happen to be interested in the Yankees. You can get out to everybody. So I think that's great. Uh, the other thing is I do think even though, you know, a lot of the readers on Twitter can be rude and disrespectful and, and abusive. I do think that the, the solid people who have uh, legitimate uh, opinions and questions and gripes have a right, a right to be heard, you know, and they do have a right to hear from me why I did certain things in a certain way. I mean, you know, if you, if you read my Twitter timeline, I interact a lot with the fans. I think they, they deserve it, you know, and if uh, I have, you know, my only hard and fast rule is if you name call or if you're disrespectful, I block you. That's it. You know, that's not it. If you want, you know, that's not allowed. Uh, if you want to have a civil discourse with me, I'm more than happy to do that. And I, as I say, as a journalist, I believe I owe that to you. You know, and I think in return, I think that the readers owe me, uh, you know, a little bit of respect and civility. You know, no name calling, no personal attacks, no disrespect, or you're out. The last one on the writing side of things before getting into some of your favorite things from getting to do this. Is there something that you missed from when you started doing this or maybe even from journalism in the past that you wish was still around or something that you might have enjoyed if it was still around in sports well, media? Well, you know, personally, you know, if I could stop time, it would be, you know, 1986 for the rest of my life because not only was I a much younger man, but, you know, I was, my job was to cover boxing, which at the time, probably, you know, among the most popular sports on earth, you know, I was covering Mike Tyson, Marvin Hagler, Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, uh, Evander Holyfield. I mean, you know, these were important fights that, you know, got on the back page or on the front page of the New York Times, got on the back page of every, uh, every tabloid in America. The world would stop, you know, to read what I had to write about, you know, a particular fight. So, yes, I miss that. I miss the fact that that's no longer a thing, uh, you know, and I, and I seriously doubt whether it ever will be again. Um, you know, but again, we have to evolve and we move on. You know, if now the thing is, uh, you know, people want to read about the NBA, you know, it may be time to move on to that. That's just the way we stay alive in this business. But, you know, if that's the one the one thing I do miss is the glamour and excitement of, of a big boxing match, which I don't really think exists anymore. So you don't think that came with the Conor McGregor Floyd Mayweather fight? <laughs> <laughs> that might have been the last the, the stake through the heart. <laughs> to be honest, you know, I was thinking about that the other day. 
Conor McGregor made $100 million for his first professional fight. Fought like an amateur. Probably couldn't fight his way out of the press box if I'm in it, okay? This guy cannot fight at all. He made 40 times more than Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier made in their fight in 1971. And I realize you can't compare the money, you know, between then and now and the, and the revenue sources, but that is just obscene. When it comes to where you currently are now, I know there's been years where you've been freelance and have been working at high places. It's not like you've just been writing for maybe a, a local newspaper that you might get. Uh, with no, we haven't gotten to that point yet, train, but you never right? know. Stay, stay tuned. Have you thought about what the future might hold for you, whether that could be writing on your own website, branching out in a sense on your own, moving back into radio, maybe sitting down yeah, and ha- putting your thoughts together for a book? I have all of those things. I have considered all those things. Actually, just, just to clear it up, I, I uh, left ESPN at the end of the 2016 season. So uh, I've been a freelancer for a year. And quite honestly, I, I kind of like the life. You know, I don't, I'm not thrilled with, with traveling, you know, uh, on 13 road trips every summer. I, I was kind of happy to, to just cover the Mets and Yankees here at home, you know, and uh, do a couple of fights and all. But yeah, I certainly have looked into the possibility of my own website, perhaps a boxing uh, uh, oriented website, uh, doing my own podcasts. Um, I think that's the wave of the future at this point. I mean, really, you see more and more. I mean, the Times, you know, honestly, used me on nearly 100 games this year as a freelancer. And I think that's the way a lot of papers are going to go. So it's much cheaper. You know what I'm saying? You could pay me by the game. And even if you pay me a decent wage by the game, you're not worried. You're not responsible for my health insurance. You're not responsible for my retirement. Uh, you know, I'm not, you're not responsible. You're not really liable to, for me. Uh, I just think that you're going to see more and more papers do that. So the thing is, I don't really think it's, it's, uh, I don't think it's it's a lucrative thing to, to look for a full-time job with a newspaper or an outlet anymore. I think in the future, more journalists are going to make their living the way I am, which is freelancing for a lot of different places. In the past year, I've written for the Washington Post. I've written for the Times. I've written for uh, The Athletic. I've written for Complex Sports. I've written for HBO. I've written for a couple of other boxing websites. I mean, there's a lot of revenue streams out there if you're willing to hustle and, and sell you your wares where they'll be bought. And believe me, there are places out there they can be bought. So I'm fine, you know, doing this the rest of my life. But at some point, if it, it looks like I can do my own thing and not have to split the money with anybody, I'm all for that. I wanted to wrap things up with a couple of quick hitting questions for you about some of your favorites from doing all of these things. And the segment mm-hmm. that I do is called Easier Pass. So you can pass on any of these, but I, okay. I think they might be easy enough to answer. First, your favorite sports moment, whether as a fan or as one that you've been able to cover or both. Tough one. There's, there's, there's two that I would mention. One is the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup in 1994 because that was just an incredible uh, scene to be at. And having been a Ranger fan, long-suffering Ranger fan from when I was a kid, it was just, it was a really hard thing for me to uh, separate, you know, my personal feelings from what I was writing about. I thought that was a great moment. The other one was George Foreman knocking out Michael Moore to win the heavyweight title, I believe it was 1995, as a 45-year-old man, something nobody expected to see. It would, the place exploded, and I've never seen uh, an arena quite as... as uh, joyful as that one so i would to me it's a dead heat between those two 
Biggest difference from the old guard Yankees, quote unquote, with the core four to this year's Yankees team with these younger group of guys? Oh, much more energy in the room this year. I mean, look, that those teams were great, but there was a rigidity about them in some ways where, you know, there they were unwritten rules. You know, this is the way Yankees behave. This is the way we act here. We don't do, you know, we do it this way. We don't do it that way. And that worked for that for that group. And I don't think it would work for this group. I think this group is more, uh, as I said, a little bit looser, uh, a little bit more energy, obviously, a lot younger and more athletic and in some ways, you know, more fun to cover. I know you hate predicting baseball, whether that involves a series in general or just <laughs> looking ahead for what happens. And it is a terribly difficult sport to have to predict but from what you were able to see from this Yankees team, obviously a little disappointment for them coming up short in the ALCS, even though not many expect them to be there. Is there something you think they need that might help them in next season? Yeah, they certainly need a starting pitcher. They need one more top-like starting pitcher. I mean, we don't know what Tanaka's going to do. Uh, Severino obviously seems solid. I think Sonny Gray is going to be better than he was this year, and I kind of think they're going to offer CeCe. Uh, at least a one year or two year deal to come back because I thought he was that good. But, you know, after that, you know, you lost Pineda. I'm not sure Jordan Montgomery is the answer. Maybe they, they try Chad Green as a starter again, but I think they got to go out and get a pitcher. Can anyone convince you from either your coworkers or someone else to come back to voting for the Baseball Hall of Fame? No, no, that's done. That's absolutely done. You know what? The beauty of it is, as long as I write for the New York Times, I can't vote for the Hall of Fame. So it's not even, <laughs> it's out of my hands. But, you know, if you want me to reiterate my reasons real quickly, I will. I think it's become a thankless task over the years. I find it harder and harder to cast a ballot that I feel good about because I honestly can't tell who was on steroids and who wasn't. I mean, there are guys who I know for sure were, but there are other guys that might have been. And there are other guys who I might not even suspect that were. So I, I kind of feel bad about, you know, not voting for certain guys and voting for other guys. And perhaps I'm slighting someone or perhaps I'm punishing someone for something they didn't do and not punishing somebody else for something they did do. Plus, I found that even guys that have been voted into the Hall of Fame have just such contempt for sports writers and openly that, uh, you know, it's difficult to fill out a Hall of Fame ballot. It really is, especially if you take it seriously like I do. And uh, to go through that process and then have a guy that you voted for after a lot of soul searching, you know, ridicule you or say something nasty to you in a press box. It's like, why am I doing this? And then, of course, the final straw was <clears throat> our good friend, Kurt Schilling, making a quote unquote joke about lynching journalists. Well, fine, pal, you want to lynch somebody? Start with me. Let's see where it goes. man. <laughs> you know, so all those things put into the hopper. It's like, I don't need this. I don't need it. It's not an ego boost. It's not, it doesn't put any money in my pocket. doesn't make me feel good about anything. So, you know, I'll leave it to the other guys. And I can attach those in my show notes because you have written at length for that decision. And even in the future, you can write about who you would put in and people will still be able to get your input. You just don't have to have that pressure over your head. Yeah, so you know, I'm at the win. point where I think that baseball players are compensated very well for what they do. They get a lot of adulation. If they also need to be enshrined in a, in a Hall of Fame, you know, that that will be somebody else's job, not mine. All right. Even quicker to get you out of here. These are these are more things you would probably find on Twitter since we're around that season. What has been your best Halloween costume? <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a good one, honestly. 
I don't, I honestly don't, but I do, I will tell you this. I had a Halloween party in my house a couple of years ago and my brother came in. I don't know how he did this, but somehow he appeared to be holding his own head in his hands, which was just like incredible. I was like, this is the best Halloween costume I've ever seen. It's scary as hell. I actually believe that your head is severed and you're holding it in your hands here. And I wish I could do something like that. I know you can probably still invite people into the ring as an answer for this question, but what is a children's board game or a children's game that you would still win if you were to play it right now? Um, I've never been beaten in Scrabble. Is that, that, I don't know if that's a children's game or not, but I'm, I'm just telling you. I'm, Isn't that good it. since you are a writer? That, that should yeah, be. Yeah, it's not even case. fair. It's not even fair. Tell you what, I'm not bad at Monopoly. I'm willing to, to wait people out forever. It's like a baseball game. You've got time. Yeah, you're right. That's right. I could wait all night. <laughs> if I want if I want Boardwalk and Park Place, I'm eventually gonna get them. What was your first concert or the first album that you owned? Interesting. Now right, this is really gonna date me, but the first single that I bought was I Wanna Hold Your Hand by the Beatles when it first came out. You are dating yourself, Wally. <laughs> that, and that was a forty five, brother. That was not an album. Uh, first concert, I think, geez, I think probably either Led Zeppelin or Deep Purple at the Nassau Coliseum, like in 1972 or so. Yeah, it was back a ways. A long time ago. The last one for you. I usually pose this to high school athletes when I do Athlete of the Week, and it's a question that I would probably need a week to think about, but I throw it on them and I'll throw it on you. Three people you'd like to have dinner with, dead or alive. Oh, my gosh. Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I, think, I think we're going to go completely dead. Abraham Lincoln, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, and, um, oh, and my favorite all-time fighter, Jack Dempsey. Excellent. So the best way for people to keep up with you and to find you next baseball season or whatever else you might be doing up until then is to probably follow you on Twitter? Follow me on Twitter. I will be continuing to write for the New York Times. I will be a contributor to nysportsday.com going forward. I will be contributing to The Athletic. Believe me, you will not be able to miss me. I'm out there. Excellent. I'll attach all of that to my show notes so people can keep an eye on what you might be up to. And Wally, thank you so much for peeling the curtain back a little bit for what you've done for all these years, what you're currently doing now, and some of the stories you've been able to cover and have with yourself. It's been a pleasure to get to hear some of them. Continued success with what you're doing writing-wise and whatever else may come from this. I know it's a constant evolution, but I really appreciate some of your time. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure, John. Take care. We'll now jump into another edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Donnie is a professional handicapper who knows a thing or two about the lines of the sports world and will be joining the bridge for a weekly segment to help us get on the right side of those lines. He'll offer up some of his best bets to correspond with the bridge fade of the week, where listeners are urged to completely go in the opposite direction of what the show picks. Conversely, if you've done so for the past two weeks, you have been victorious fading the bridge picks. Since I have been incorrect two weekends in a row... For the upcoming weekend, with the line set as of this recording of the show, the bridge fade of the week. 
Give me the Dallas Cowboys giving two points in Washington against the Redskins. Now to someone who actually knows what he's doing. You can find Donnie at DonnieRightside.com and at SportsBookReview.com and also follow him on Twitter. He's at RightSideVP. And remember, this segment is for entertainment purposes only. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Has anybody got a dime? Oh, yeah. I don't have a dime. Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. Hey, folks, Donnie Wrightside here from SportsbookReview.com and DonnieWrightside.com coming to you today once again on the bridge with The Toll Booth. Last week, a 1-1 one and one split. Not good enough, folks. Our goal was always to go 2-0 and oh, as we did the previous week. But last night, we were able to go 1-1. One and one. Lost our college football play, but we were able to hit an easy winner on Monday Night Football with the Philadelphia Eagles over the Washington Redskins. We're going to come with another two-pack tonight, see if we can cross that bridge. Hey, the goal is here. We'll go out and have some pizza, have some beers, maybe a little bit left over. Take the lady out. Have a good time this weekend. Let's win you some money out there, folks. That's what the name of the game will be. We're going to start this week in college football. That's going to be rotation 215, 216, a 340 p.m. Eastern time kickoff between the Houston Cougars and the South Florida Bulls. A time of taping here. The line at CG Technologies is minus 10 and a half. Uh, Bet Chris at 10 and a half and also sportsbook.com at 10 and a half. So we'll stick with that line. We're going to lean on the South Florida Bulls, give a little bit of a background on the story here for us. Last two games that the Houston Cougars did play at Tulsa didn't show up, losing 45-17. to Then played a game at home versus Memphis, had the lead late, but actually blew the game as a one-point favorite, losing 42-38. to Looking back with South Florida, it's been pretty much cherries on the season, beating Illinois 47-23. Temple 43-7. East Carolina 61-31. Cincinnati 33-3. Last week, as a 10-point road favorite to a decent Tulane team, actually didn't cover the spread, folks, winning 34-28. to But if you dig a little bit deeper in that football game, late in the third quarter, the South Florida Bulls had a 34-7 to advantage, creeped up, you know, a couple junk touchdowns that ended up, so maybe getting a little bit cheaper tonight. Let's lean on the South Florida Bulls on Saturday as part of our college football action, flipping it over to Sunday. Let's have a little bit of fun here. We've been doing very well in the National Football League. I anticipate us having a very nice day. Also, we're going to take a look at a, excuse me, a pro football game here, 265-266 on the rotation, 1 p.m. on Sunday. It's going to be the Chargers and Phillip Rivers versus New England and Tom Brady at the time of taping tonight. Chris has the line at minus 7. CG Technologies at minus 7, minus 120. Bet on line showing minus 7.5, plus 102. So we'll stick with the touchdown here as the prevailing line. You know, you saw last weekend, if we're taking a look at New England, riding the ship, 23-7 victory over Atlanta the week before, down 14 to nothing. A nice comeback winner, 24-17 over the New York Jets. Beat Tampa Bay on a Thursday night football game, 19-14. Getting a little bit healthy here, but we're actually going to lean on the visitors here with Phillip Rivers playing some decent football here. If you watch earlier in the season, one of the uh, losses they took was to the Kansas City Chiefs at home 24-10. That game was a 17-10 game into the fourth quarter. A late tack on touchdown made it look a little bit worse than it was. The Philadelphia Eagles 26-24. They lost there. New York Giants beating them as a three-point dog 27-22 and also taking down the Oakland Raiders as a dog as well 17-16 and putting away the Denver Broncos 21-0. Seems to me Phillip Rivers when you're getting more than three, three and a half points in the game, he's always going to have your team there at least knocking on the the door in the fourth quarter, if not winning the football game.
game. We're going to lean on the Los Angeles Chargers this one, folks. We're going to take it plus seven. So just to recap here on Saturday, we're going to go college football action with South Florida minus 10 and a half to pull out the victory and cover versus the Houston Cougars. Then we'll flip it over to Sunday. I know it's kind of sacrilegious, but we are going to go against the man, the myth, the legend, Tom Brady on Sunday and lean on those Los Angeles Chargers getting the seven points there. This has been Donnie Wrightside from sportsbookreview.com. DonnieWrightside.com. Always have a lot of fun here on the bridge. Cross that toll booth. Put that money in your pocket. Let's see if we can grab some winners. See you again next week, folks. Take care. Left side. Strong side. Left side. Strong side. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Since Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins to this segment, and don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better breakdown of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down The Snowman which Rotten Tomatoes describes as when an elite crime squad's lead detective investigates the disappearance of a victim on the first snow of the winter, he fears an elusive serial killer may be active again. With the help of a brilliant recruit, the cop must connect decades-old cold cases to the brutal new one if he hopes to outwit this unthinkable evil before the next snowfall. The Snowman, as you might have heard, has not been reviewed well and has an 8% rating out of 100 on Rotten Tomatoes. A film so bad that it won't even become a cult classic. A film so bad, you might just have to go see it for yourself. Or at least wait until it comes out on Netflix. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. Since 2014's Gone Girl, October has been the stomping ground for psychological thrillers based on books. Gone Girl was a critical and box office success, so naturally studios have tried to piggyback off its good fortune. Last year, Girl on the Train was pegged as the next Gone Girl, and the trailers looked great. It sported a strong cast that included Emily Blunt, Rebecca Ferguson, and Luke Evans. I was pumped to see it one of my most anticipated films of 2016. It was alright. I enjoyed it, but it was nowhere near the greatness of Gone Girl. This year's Gone Girl entry is The Snowman. Again, the trailer looked great, and the cast is stellar with Michael Fassbender, Rebecca Ferguson, again, and J.K. Simmons. When it comes to its quality, would The Snowman be more like Gone Girl or Girl on the Train? 
let's go to the tape. The good thing going into the snowman was my expectations were rock bottom because of the 9% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So it really had nothing to lose with me. In that sense, the movie exceeded my very, very low expectations. So yeah, it was bad. Michael Fassbender is awesome in everything. I always want to see a movie that stars him. He's very good here, too. The problem is there's nothing for him to work with. We are given basic details about him. He falls asleep in random public places like a homeless person. He smokes. He has a drinking problem. He has family trouble. That's all we know about him. He's the main character. We learn nothing about who he is or why he is the way he is. Same with Rebecca Ferguson. Ferguson burst onto the scene with her performance in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, where she was arguably the best part of the movie and able to handle the physicality of the role. She's since nailed roles in Floris Foster Jenkins and Life, so she has shown the talent. She does well in The Snowman, too, but she's wasted in a role that has no depth. J.K. Simmons, an amazing character actor, has no purpose in this film other than to throw another big name in the cast. It's not his fault. The character is simply a plot device, nothing more. That's just sad. Speaking of sad, Val Kilmer's in this movie. I believe he was recently battling cancer, so that may have had to do with his performance, but it seemed like a strange choice. His lines were 80-yard, and the timing was off on the sound and movement of his mouth. On top of everything else, his character was also pointless. Another plot device. I would love to know what happened here, but ultimately, let's just hope Val is doing okay. There's a real lack of mystery to the plot, which really makes the snowman drag. The trailer pretty much tells you why the murders are happening, and the first scene in the movie tells you why he does it. All that's left is whodunit. And that's what this movie ultimately becomes, a poorly written whodunit film. That's just not interesting, and that's not what this movie sold itself as. The snowman is also very difficult to follow, not because it's intelligent. There are pointless subplots and a real lack of focus that makes the movie confusing. There's literally a subplot about Oslo, Norway, trying to host the Winter Olympics that serves no purpose. As I said earlier, there are characters who are there just to throw you off who the real killer is. And the big reveal of the killer just doesn't add up to what we have seen throughout the film. I feel bad for the book because I'm sure author Joe Nesbo does a better job in print. The bottom line, The Snowman is a disappointing mess that wastes its great acting talent. The story isn't cohesive, and the mystery isn't interesting after the first five minutes. I loved Gone Girl, but the psychological thriller genre has devolved ever since. So how was Gone Girl successful? First and foremost, Gillian Flynn, the author of Gone Girl, also wrote the screenplay. Who better to write the screenplay than the person who came up with the idea in the first place? Who would understand what needs to be done more than her? Snowman was written by three people. None of them were the author of the novel. Also, one of the best directors in the business, who constantly captures the dark tone of films perfectly, David Fincher, directed Gone Girl. So until we get the right team up for this genre, behind the camera and in the writer's room, maybe it's time to put it to bed. I'll rank the Snowman as a three and out. Every drive starts with potential, but this one ended with a punt after two incompletions and a sack. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please.
That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Thursday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge Sports Podcast on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on the TuneIn app, where you can also listen to the show live on Wednesday nights at 7 Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive back into Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.